0: Global Business News, 24 hours a day, at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. From Bloomberg World headquarters, I'm Charlie Pellet. Stocks are slipping from near-record levels after European Central Bank President Mario Draghi downplayed the need for more stimulus measures to bolster growth. Apple weighing on stocks, falling the most in two months. A day after the introduction of its latest iPhone, Apple is down now by 2.7%. The S&P 500 index down 4 at 2181, a drop there of two-tenths of 1%. Dow Industrials down 46, a decline of three-tenths of 1%. And NASDAQ is down 23 points, a drop of Five tenths of one percent. The ten-year down 20-30 seconds with a yield of one point six one percent. Gold down seven ninety the ounce to thirteen thirty-seven. A drop there of six tenths of one percent. Crude oil surging four point three percent after the inventories report. Up a dollar ninety-four a barrel. Forty-seven forty-four right now on West Texas Intermediate crude. I'm Charlie Pelleton. That's a Bloomberg Business Flash. You're listening to Taking Stock with Pim Fox and Kathleen Hayes on Bloomberg Radio.
1: What would you do if you fired yourself? Would you rehire yourself? Well, let's find out a little bit more from Elliot Weisbluth. He is the founder and the chief executive of Tower Advisors, uh, helping to uh, manage uh, over $30 billion in assets for uh, clients. He's based in Chicago, but he joins us here at Bloomberg World Headquarters in New York. Elliot, thanks for being here. Hey,
2: Tim. Good to see you.
1: Um, I mentioned this idea of hiring and firing yourself because I know that is something that you do every year explain what it is this means
2: so i have to give full credit to the inspiration andy grove at intel is famous for this technique that he did with his management team and and i've adopted it and and uh made it pretty personal and adopted it on the team and the general idea is that you can't get to a state of mind where you can forgive yourself for all the things you did wrong the year before unless you actually fire yourself have a candid conversation about all the things that you you didn't do exactly the way you had hoped that they would turn out, or the judgments you made that in hindsight, maybe you would have made them a little bit differently. And it's a bit of a tongue-in-cheek exercise, right? Because there's nothing funny about firing, and you fire yourself. But then, of course, after you've smarted the wounds of being fired, you have the good sense to hire yourself back. And it's the hiring yourself back, I think, where there's a lot of uh, magic uh, that can happen inside of a way a, a person thinks about decision-making. Because if you're the new guy, then you don't have any obligation to all those crazy decisions the old guy did, right? Because after all, you're the new guy. So you go through that process, and what it allows you to do is say, Well, if I was the new guy showing up here for the first time, what are some of the things I would change today? And that frees your mind to say, okay, here are a couple of decisions that I'm going to make today or judgments I'm going to make today. And they may not be massive, profound, monumental shifts, but they might be very important changes that you're going to make to begin a process or to begin a conversation or to accelerate or decelerate part of the world around you. And that freedom is is pretty powerful and pretty liberating.
3: So I guess every year you've rehired yourself, so no surprise there. So far. There. Last, so last, far. Yeah, well, I, I think take tongue-in-cheek, <laughs> you, you'll probably keep rehiring yourself, maybe t- tougher some years than others. So share with us, last year, what was the number one thing that you didn't do correctly? You said, oh boy, you really blew it, Elliot, and then Great the new question. Elliot got to say, okay, here's what I'm doing in 2016. Right. So
2: we, a, a couple of years ago, we had a strategic plan to um, optimize part of our business. We knew we had built a platform that a lot of advisors used. And we had a strategic vision to take it and apply it to a different part of the marketplace. And we knew intellectually that it would make sense because it was a a good idea. But what we hadn't done and what I hadn't done is taken the time to properly, fully evangelize all of the people that had to make it happen. And it's not just the CEO and a couple of leaders in the business. You need to have a consensus if you're going to really take on a, a strategic shift. And so I had moved too quickly ahead of the people that had to make it happen. And I recognized that, but in the process of firing myself and rehiring myself, I realized how important it was to go back and re-evangelize some of those people and really get them on board in a way that when we renewed our energies in, in the first part of the year, they would be much more engaged and much more involved in making the uh, that, that sort of activity is success. As a result of that, this year we're on track, uh, to have the uh, greatest growth year we've had since we launched the business. And a lot of that was because many of the people that didn't really feel included in the conversation were, were properly brought into the conversation. They hit the ground running with a different level of energy. And it was, largely because I had failed to properly evangelize them and bring them to where they needed to be to make the uh, initiative a success. I'm not going to ask you about
1: the biggest concern that uh, registered investment advisors have, which is your sort of force of employees, so to speak. Sure. But what are some of the, the things that they're coming to you with that they're getting from their customers? What, what kinds of questions are they coming to you with?
2: Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I was uh, in Minneapolis, St. Paul, uh, last night, and I welcomed a new team um, into Hightower, and a, a fantastic financial advisor, a veteran of the industry, and a great group of his clients uh, joined uh, to welcome him into his new office, and we went to welcome him to Hightower. And what I heard at that room, and I heard as I was was greeting the clients and, and over the cocktail hour, is what i 'm hearing a lot of, which is that there 's a, a, a significant amount of um, uneasiness about the markets, and there 's a difficulty today with with uh, opportunities that will create uh, yield for clients and so there 's a strong sentiment in the community to, to not reach for yield, to not, to not do things differently because the markets today are, are difficult for a lot of advisors to find opportunities. So it's a combination of a market environment coupled with a, a sense of an easiness. And I think that uneasiness is fueled not just by maybe the political landscape in this country, what's happening, what's happening around the world, things like Zika. There's a whole variety of things that are playing into it, but the levels of uneasiness uh, we're, we're hearing, you know, literally from around the country are, are pretty high.
3: Well, and we do talk to advisors. We understand it's, it's very difficult to keep the risk low for your, for your client and also get them the kind of returns that they would like to have. More broadly, then, especially at a time like this, you've got negative rates and you know bond yields negative around the world are so very low. Or fixed income isn't helping that much. Dividend paying stocks maybe a little bit played out. That's a possibility. But what can and should a person expect from their advisor? Is it first and foremost making sure I don't lose money? What What is the number one thing I should be expecting them to do?
2: So I, I think the most important thing for an individual to think about is do they feel that their financial advisor has built a comprehensive plan for them and their family? And it may not just be limited to the technical financial plan, which maps out various needs that a family may have. It's is the financial advisor looking at today's market in context of the person's total wellness, how they think about where the family's going, where the needs are going to be? Because we we focus much more on the total picture, if you will, then what might be happening Is today. Is it different
3: for a wealthy customer that you, you probably have a lot of those versus somebody who's just hoping they'll have enough money to live in retirement?
2: I, obviously, there are differences in those needs. But I think that if you're thinking about a person's well-being and how they think about their relationship to money... Everything is contextual in terms of the quality of their life, the quality of their health, educational needs, retirement needs, and everybody has those needs. They may just have different quantities and, and different complexities with that, with those stages of life. But a person who's thinking about re- retiring at one income level is going to have similar life stage issues, even if they have many more dollars. So the complexity may change, and obviously a person with a lot of money has a different set of problems than a person who who has has more modest income. But emotionally and, and from the way they are going through their lives, they're having similar experiences.
1: Elliot, according to the Council for Economic Education, they do a survey of the states, The study found that 72% of parents experience at least some reluctance to talk to their children about financial matters. So how do you become a
2: financial grown-up? It's a great question. In some ways, that that makes the case, obviously, for a a thoughtful financial advisor, because if the mom and dad are having some difficult um, times having these conversations, this is where – a good professional can engage you know one of the things that we have to start talking about is the relationship between money and and total wellness uh, and if you look at the data, a lot of the stress that comes from divorce, a lot of the stress that leads to people calling into hotlines um, a lot of the the reasons that people feel uneasy about life can in many ways be tied to their money. yet people don't tend to think about their financial advisor the same way they do as a doctor or a lawyer they think of the financial advisor more as a, a tactician or a strategist to deliver a certain routine, a certain return, I think if, if the good financial advisors that are out there have figured out that the way they can add a lot of value is actually by broadening the way they interact with the families and, and the people, and the opportunity to do that I think, is fantastic when you have parents that need a third party to talk to their children about about how to think about money
3: fifteen seconds left, how do I know when to fire my advisor and move on?
2: Oh, it's a very difficult question to answer in fifteen seconds. But while. I would say that the first, the first indication that you have the wrong person is when you get the sense that they're they're trying to constantly sell you something, and they have a new thing to sell you rather than trying to build you a long range financial plan for your future.
3: Well, short answer, but long on wisdom. Thank you so much, Elliot Weissbluth, founder and CEO of CEO of HighTower. Uh, He is talking to us about financial advisors, talking about what you should look for in them and more. And we hope you'll come back soon, Elliot. I'm Kathleen Hayes along with Pim Fox, and this is Bloomberg.